Hey there, Mike Stelzner coming to you with a fascinating update you might not be familiar with. Did you know that Social Media Examiner can deliver all the marketing, training, news, and trends, insights that you need into your inbox three days a week when you sign up for our newsletter and it's completely free? Simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates and take your marketing to the next level. Welcome to the Web3 Business Podcast, helping you navigate the future of business. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Web3 Business Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web3. Today, I'm going to be joined by Dan Romero, and we're going to talk about decentralized social media, and we're specifically going to talk about Farcaster. And you may not have heard of Farcaster, but this is a open protocol, a open social decentralized protocol, and I think you're going to absolutely find today's interview absolutely fascinating. By the way, I'm at Stelzner on Instagram, at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter, and at Web3Examiner on Warpcast. You'll understand what that means in a little bit. Also, if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. Did you know that we can deliver awesome marketing info directly into your inbox? Simply subscribe to our weekly newsletter that comes out three days a week. You won't miss any of the updates going on in the world of social marketing. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Dan Romero. Helping you to simplify your Web3 journey, here is this week's Expert Guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Dan Romero. If you don't know who Dan is, he's the founder of Farcaster Protocol. His company is called Warpcast. It's a Web3 software company that builds apps on the Farcaster Protocol, including Warpcast, a social platform for Web3. Dan, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. You got a lot of casts in there, so I wanted to make sure I said everything right. Warpcast and Farcast. We're going to get into all that stuff. Today, Dan and I are going to explore decentralized social media and how the Farcaster protocol and the Warpcast app work together. But before we go there, I would love to hear your backstory. Dan, how the heck did you get into social and Web3? Start wherever you want to start. Yeah, so I'm originally from the East Coast, always had an interest in technology and a dream of moving to Silicon Valley to work in tech. I finally moved out to San Francisco in 2013 and was working at a SaaS company for the first year I was there. And basically every interesting person I met had a, an opinion, whether it was a positive or negative opinion, on Bitcoin. But I didn't have a perspective. I had kind of dismissed it, which is actually kind of funny. One of the co-founders of Coinbase was a, a college roommate of mine. Really? And when I was first moving out, yeah, Fred Ursum. Uh, okay, yeah, 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 Fred. When I was first moving out to Silicon Valley, he, he pitched me on joining Coinbase as kind of like employee one or two. And I, I kind of laughed because <laughs> I thought it was a Ponzi scheme. It, it's, it's a classic example of don't judge a book by its cover. Actually read, read the, you know, in this case, the white paper. But over that first year of being in Silicon Valley and, and kind of talking to all these interesting people, I realized I, I should have a perspective on Bitcoin one way or another that was a little bit more informed than it's, it's magic internet money or a Ponzi scheme. And so I went and actually read the white paper, which is quite short and incredibly cogent. And since then, I've, I've kind of been obsessed with the idea of permissionless public blockchains. And the initial one was Bitcoin. And then when Ethereum came out and started to kind of rise in prominence in 2016, 2017, I think that captured my interest and it's kind of kept my interest. But yeah, that, that's where I got interested in it. And then I actually made the hop over to Coinbase about a year later after Fred originally had pitched me on joining. So I was an employee 20 at Coinbase and I was there for five years. And so scaled with the company, did a, a variety of different roles. I ran international for a while. I ran all the fiat payments that kind of power Coinbase's business, a bunch of other different functions. I ran the consumer business for a bit. And so I've been in crypto almost a decade now. And when I left Coinbase in 2019, traveled a bit, COVID extended that a little. And then I reconnected with a colleague of mine from Coinbase, Varun Srinivasan, in October of 2020. And we started kind of iterating through some ideas. One of those ideas ended up becoming what is now Farcaster. And I'm, I'm happy to 
explain a little bit more about that? Well, it's fascinating that you were roommates with Fred because I, back when Clubhouse was hot, you know, and I didn't really understand anything about crypto. I was going into these rooms and Fred was in there talking very articulately about the whole crypto side of things. And he was really the guy that kind of piqued my interest because he was so smart. Like, what were you guys studying when you were in college? Were you guys in the same class together or just out of curiosity? Like, that's fascinating that you met him. It sounds like that was kind of a key part of your storyline, huh? Yeah, he, he lived across the hall from me junior year. Fred actually majored in computer science. I didn't. That was a, a probably a mistake in retrospect, although, you know, things have worked out so far. But I, I was an English major. And so it kind of, to those listening out there, I don't think you have to have a technical degree to actually be technical. It's it's kind of a willingness to spend the time reading and, and learning. And and so for me, it's always kind of been self-taught. Uh, everything I know about product and technology is is basically reading from the internet. I have no formal instruction in you know computer science. So that was maybe a difference. And what was interesting is Fred ended up working at Goldman Sachs in the FX trading desk. And having majored in computer science and working in foreign exchange trading, it naturally made him interested in Bitcoin. And so I, I think that that ended up being a, a pretty fortunate thing for him. And then fortunate that I knew him so that I was at least aware of Coinbase and, and Bitcoin at the time. Although it took me a year to figure it out. So you were there for five years. You left, was it pre-IPO? Yeah, pre-IPO. So IPO was in 2021. Yep. Uh, my wife had been at another startup for five years and we hadn't had kids yet. And so we spent some time traveling, which was great. I got a chance to read a bunch of books. I think something like a hundred books over a year and a half because I, I literally was just doing whatever was interesting to me. It was the first time in my entire life that I didn't have any structure. And so that was pretty fun. I think COVID, you know, good and bad. I think in terms of like, we were able to travel to a couple of places and rent an Airbnb. But I think at a certain point I got bored and that's when I reconnected with Varun and, and we started kind of working through ideas. Was he also from Coinbase or no? Yeah. So he was a director of engineering there for basically the entire time I was there. What was the dream? What was the idea? What was the pitch that you made him when you first met with him and you said, hey, why don't we try something here? I think it was actually a wider uh, set of, I, I think we first said, hey, do we want to work together? And so we, we actually spent some time just working through ideas, pen to paper, not necessarily writing business plans, but more we would kind of iterate through an idea over one or two days and, and kind of try to critique it, you know, steel man, straw man, whatever version, depending on who was pitching the idea. And I think Varun originally was a little bit more into DeFi. And so I think we went in that direction first, because also it was like 2020. So DeFi, I think, was a little bit more relevant. And I think we both had the opinion that social would be really interesting, but a really hard problem to crack because it, it's, it's such a chicken and the egg problem, especially in 2023, where you have these huge existing social networks, right? Yeah. And so I think we kind of went back and forth between a DeFi idea and a kind of more consumer-oriented idea. And I had had this itch that I wanted to scratch for a long time, since basically when I first joined Twitter in 2007. And, and Paul Graham actually wrote an essay. When you say join Twitter, do you mean work for Twitter or do you mean use the platforms? Signed up for Twitter. I signed up for Twitter in college. Yep. I actually built an early API app called Straw Poll with, with a couple of friends. And that was a polling mechanism before Twitter natively had polls. So I've been obsessed with Twitter for 15 plus years. And in 2009, Paul Graham actually wrote a really short essay that most people have never read. They've, they've read a lot of his essays, but this one is just called like Twitter and you can kind of Google for it. And what, what's interesting about it is really, really short. And he just makes an observation that Twitter is an interesting company and in that it, it kind of like caught a protocol. And we can talk about what a protocol is later in a bottle and it like turned it into a company where he's like, most companies aren't like that, but like Twitter should be a protocol and it somehow ended up inside a company. And I always thought it was a really interesting insight. And so that, that idea had been kind of rattling around in my head for, for a decade. And the other thing that I had always been interested in, and maybe some folks on your audience use this, but Google Reader was a product that I was a big fan of back in the day. And, it, and that uses uh, RSS, which is another type of, of protocol. Again, we can talk about that a little bit later. And I always kind of thought like, huh, what if you, you took the best of RSS, which is kind of anyone can build on top of it, no one owns it, and mixed it with Twitter, could, could you actually build something there? And so that, that, that idea was kind of there. And in working through it with Varun, I think we came to kind of a, a, like an initial kernel of like, okay, maybe we could go build this. 
And so then we started kind of working on it right at the beginning of 2021, just the two of us. We had kind of an explicit goal, just like don't hire anyone until we figured out like what we think is actually going to work. And so we spent almost a year working on it, just the two of us before bringing in the first person onto the team. And so that, that you know, two people in a room just iterating on kind of both the app and the idea, pretty special period. And, and uh, I would highly recommend anyone who's trying to start anything new is like, don't get over your skis too fast. Like spend more time kind of iterating as, as small as you can uh, from a team standpoint. You know, it's fascinating because I started Social Media Examiner in 2009, but I started ideating it in 2008. And one of the things I remember about Twitter was it was kind of a protocol. It was really like this big, it really was about the third party apps and the API that made Twitter what it is. It wasn't until, you know, the last, if you will, five or 10 years where they decided to regain control of the API and centralize everything into this thing that it really radically changed. And I also remember Google Reader, if I'm not mistaken, they ended up shutting that thing down, didn't they? And all these people that were into, you know, tracking articles like mine, on because so, I had hundreds of thousands of people tracking us on that. And there was another party that came up with something else that kind of modeled it a little bit. But it's really, really interesting because those were eras where I was active in those times, which I think is a great transition into why protocols. Let's talk about why protocols matter and why especially they're going to matter in Web3, in your opinion. Yeah. So let's just do quick internet history. So if you call web one, web two, web three. So web one, 90s.com, basically it's, it's people getting on the internet. And at that point, it was really bootstrapping off an academic system. So the, the underlying things that make the internet work, and I'm, I can throw a bunch of acronyms, TCP, IP, you may have heard that before. If you ever used something and you're like, what's that? That's actually the lowest level. Then you have in your browser, when you see a link and it says HTTP, we just kind of ignore that now. Hypertext protocol, is that what it is? Right, exactly. It's, yeah. it's, it's protocol. And, and so you can send that link to anyone and it'll open a web browser and behind the scenes, all the, you know, whether you're using Chrome or Safari or, you know, Brave, like all of those browsers can handle a web page completely the same. Domain names, .com, .net, .xyz, that's DNS. And, and so all of, and, and an email, another one, SMTP, right? So we, we use like kind of vernacular when we talk about how, you know, oh, I'm surfing the web. But underneath that is a protocol. And, and what's really neat about these things is if you can kind of get them to a point where they, they start to have a bit of a network effect, it's like other people building on top of them and, and using them. It's really great because then you can actually go build something and then immediately have a market for whatever you built. Simplest example of this, you throw up a website, you know that anyone who has a web browser, which is basically everyone, right? Even every phone on it has a web browser, can can get to your website. Couldn't we even say the same about electricity? Couldn't couldn't you say DC and AC are protocols? Totally, and and, and a, a communications generally is a a kind of you know radio is pretty pretty standard television. It, like all all these things are kind of like when when you get a new technology, if you can kind of standardize to some mount, and then anyone else can come into the space, it accelerates the rate of innovation. Now, what happened was you had the dot-com crash, and then you kind of have a whole bunch of new companies that get started, and, and we call it Web2. And if you actually look, there are two distinct eras of Web2 in my mind. The early part of Web2, there were all these terms like RSS was part of this, but it was kind of like mashups, APIs, Flickr, you know, you have all these kind of different things, and we were going to remix the web and everything was be together. And, and even Facebook and Twitter, which were kind of birthed at the end of that cycle, th their early days, they were very much about that. It's kind of like open access and, you, you know, every, every Twitter account, you could just use the API and you could build your own app on top of it. And then the mobile era flipped in. And, and two things came with the mobile era. One, you had pretty big gatekeepers in Apple and Google in the sense that, like, they decided what apps could exist versus if you contrast to the internet, you don't have to ask permission to start a website, right? But you do have to get Apple's or Google's permission to be in the app store. And the reality is consumers like apps, right? It's like, if you think of the, the pre-app era, like all the spyware and malware that was on your computer, and in terms of just performance and, like, the niceness, like, compared to a mobile website, like, the Instagram app is better than the Instagram mobile website, right? So consumers started drifting in that direction. And then it became really clear what, what the monetization model for all of these apps were, especially if they were the free ones, is you just get people to spend time and then you can show them ads. And so what you had is you had a whole bunch of these kind of web 
two early web two companies that transitioned to mobile do a hard tap. So Facebook got rid of its plat- the developer platform and Twitter got rid of its developer platform. Yeah, people forget there were apps like Farm, whatever the heck it was called, all these games and apps, and people were making a lot of money building on the Facebook platform, right? Right, and, and people were saying this is the natural progression, right? We went from operating systems with Microsoft. People forget like how big and bad Microsoft was in the, in the 90s. And then, then you get to the kind of internet with like Google and the open web and like all of a sudden the web is now more important than the operating system. And in some ways we went backwards from that kind of openness because these locked down mobile operating systems, right? Like Google's like this whole, like everything is open, but the reality is they control the Google Play Store, which is a huge centralizing force even within the Android ecosystem. And so, look, it, it was a rational choice, both from consumers, because they were optimizing for convenience, user experience, a lot of these kind of economies of scale. S- safety and security too, right? Totally. And it's not to blame consumers. Right. And then naturally, these companies are like, well, we got to make money off this. And so there's this kind of just trend that gets towards what you had in the 2010s of increasingly larger and larger apps that are at scale, that have really slick user experiences, offer Uh, from the case of like public social media, so whether it's YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, massive reach, right? And so now people are like, well, I don't need to reinvent the underlying thing here. If I'm a creator, what I care about is like how many people are seeing my content. And so you're just going to use those platforms. And and so that's where where we've kind of drifted towards. But I think we started to see some of the cracks of that in, in, you know, call it 2020-ish, especially when people are all stuck at home. But social media went from people would make fun of people using Twitter. It was like, oh, what are you having your lunch sandwich or whatever? Like, you're going to tell the whole Yeah, I don't care about what your cat is doing or whatever. Right. And it was like the classic thing to, in a 10-year period, this is an existential threat to democracy. Okay? Like, kind of like cat videos and, and lunch photos to existential threat to democracy. That's a, that's a pretty powerful shift in terms of the, the public perspective. And so what I think where we're emerging into and what we're we're working on with Farcaster is I think that there can actually be a a middle path. And so sometimes it's like this, like web one, web two, web three, it's like getting better. And that's actually, it's like, that's the wrong frame. I think that the way to think about web three is can we take the best of web one, which as I mentioned before, are kind of built on all of these like protocols which for the average user, you don't necessarily know about, but for the developer, that's, that's really important. And then Web 2, which showed this is actually how you get several billion people to be on the internet, right? It's like these really nice experiences on a mobile phone that create trust and convenience and user experience. And so can you blend the two of those together? And, and then that I actually think is, is, you know, people love getting upset about the term Web3 and everyone tries to define it. And then you have the critics who are just saying it's all scams and the people who are saying, oh, well, if, if it's Web3, it's better. Versus I actually just think you, you need to kind of get to a point of saying the the improvement to where we are is we should keep the best parts of Web2 while bringing back that kind of openness and the, the freedom of choice for specifically consumers that was available in, in the kind of web one era. And, and whether or not that can happen, we'll, we'll find out. I, I love the way that you're positioning this because for those of us that are slightly more gray and have been around for a while, we remember what it was like before the internet. It was completely centralized control. You know, if you were a musician and you weren't going to get signed by a major artist, forget it. It was impossible. Or if you were a writer and you didn't have the right kind of connections, you could never get that novel published, right? Or if you wanted to write, you had to get hired by the biggest newspapers, you know, in the country. And I love the internet because when it first came out, anybody could blog, anybody could write, whether anybody would read it is a different question. And then social layer brought traffic, right? And network effect, which I think is really amazing. And of course, it's funny, this pendulum between decentralized and centralized, decentralized and centralized. But now I think covering the social space, we know now that it's ridiculous how hard it is to compete right now against these centralized power brokers. It's exactly the same as it was in the early nineties before the internet was invented. So what I'm curious about from your perspective, when we think about the concept of decentralized and we couple it with social media, why and what will this do? What's the promise here? Like what will this make possible? So I think there are two primary benefits and the two different audiences. So the first is 
let's just talk about social media today. You think of kind of creators, people publishing content, wanting to connect with an audience. The existing paradigm is you can spend 10 years building a Twitter following, 10 years building a YouTube following, and overnight, for whatever reason, it doesn't have to just be political, it just be, could be a glitch. You can lose access to that hard-earned audience. And there's no export your audience once we don't want to do business with you anymore. It's your account just doesn't work. There's not even like one chance to just, you know, put one last message to say, if you want to find me, I'll be over here. Happens all the time. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and so it's the kind of problem that the average consumer doesn't care about at all. Like they're just like, okay, whatever. I'm just going to keep looking for cat videos on YouTube or, or whatever, whatever they're trying to do. But for the, the content creator, that's existential, especially if, if that's your, if your full-time business, right? Contrast, uh, by the way, to email, remember Web1 protocol, where if you have an email newsletter and you use MailChimp or Substack, it would be preposterous if one of those platforms decided they didn't want to work with you anymore for whatever reason, and then somehow held your, your newsletter list hostage. No, they would just say, okay, you can export your, your email list. And, and there's no, no law requiring that. That is just a norm that exists because email was a, built on top of, you know, it is protocol. And so that is what we are trying to do with Farcaster for the kind of person posting in the world is you post and it's directly kind of connected to your audience, which by the way, you don't own your audience. This is another thing that people are like, oh, own your audience. No, no, no. Your audience owns the, the relationship with you. Right. So I don't want to follow you anymore. I can unfollow you. You you can't force me to keep watching your stuff. But that's actually a very different relationship. But you than, own the distribution potentially, right? Exactly. You continue to earn the trust, right, of your of your audience, right? But the, the key is there's no third party intermediary that can come through and just snip that connection in, in one fell swoop. So so that's a really, really important thing that we're trying to accomplish with Parkcast. And the instantiation, like the the kind of like app you can use, Warpcast, and, and there are a bunch of other apps that are starting to get built on in kind of in the ecosystem. But our app, Warpcast, looks a lot like Twitter. And the idea is like, you know, kind of follow model, like, reply, all, all that jazz in a, in a mobile app. And what you know at the end of the day is that if I go and use a different app, I can still participate and, and communicate to all those people, right? Like Warpcast can't go say, sorry, you, you no longer have access to the audience that you worked hard to build. That, that, that's like a, like a fundamental technical design of what we were building. Well, and if, it, if I can just interject here for a second, for those of you that are not creators or, or who do not have like really large followings on the social platforms like we do here at Social Media Examiner, it's very, very easy. For example, one day Facebook just shut us down. We had 300,000. Now we have more than that. I believe we're 600 now, but we had 300,000 followers, fans, whatever you want to call them on Facebook. And for whatever reason, they shut us down. I had to implement a massive PR campaign to get Facebook to even respond to me. And most people don't have hundreds of thousands of people on their email list that they can, they can get to kind of like get, you know, Hey, somebody inside of Facebook. Hello. Like you guys screwed up. Something's wrong here. You know what I mean? And email on the other side, we have 405,000 at our peak. We had 650,000, you know, but over time, you know, obviously people unsubscribe and stuff, but the idea that I could switch email providers, right? Like I was with one, I went to another, I exported my list. I imported them back in. And of course people unsubscribe and it's true. Sometimes the, even with email, there are intermediaries like Google spam that can decide the email isn't going to get into the inbox, all that kind of stuff. But at least I can download those email addresses as long as I comply to what the laws are, you know, with, with privacy and stuff. And I love the contrast to email with social, because I can assure you that there's really no way that I could download my 180,000 Twitter followers on my personal profile and just take them over to LinkedIn. I can't do that. It's simply not possible, but that's essentially what I'm hearing you say with a protocol. Once you establish the relationship and the communication pipes are built presumably it doesn't matter what app I'm using. Is that really what I'm hearing you say? Exactly right. So, you know, for a Web3 audience, you guys probably get this analogy pretty well. And, and this is something I learned at Coinbase. You know, people talk about Coinbase as having this network effect or whatever. It, it doesn't. Coinbase sells a commodity product. And, and look, they have other products that they're trying to build that are different. But the core Coinbase business, you onboard a customer, they buy some Bitcoin or Ethereum. And then every day that they keep that crypto with 
Coinbase is a vote of confidence in Coinbase. They are one or two clicks away from moving that either to a wallet they control or another competitor. Right. Like, that's not what Web2 companies are about, right? Like, you can't, like, export your Airbnb history, whether you're as a, as a visitor or a host, to some other platform. And, and so this, this idea of, like, you, you living in a, an environment where you're built on a protocol, Bitcoin and Ethereum are protocols, and now customers have choice is a very different operating environment, and it forces Coinbase to have to deal with the consequences of its decisions in a much more real manner, right? So if Coinbase started to do some of the, the gimmicks like the, and I don't want to pick on Airbnb because I think it's a fantastic company, but recent thing about cleaning fees in Airbnb, which I think most people have if you've ever done an Airbnb, they get tacked on at the end. If, if someone's offering a better version, if, if Airbnb, the, the kind of concept was a protocol and someone was offering a like more transparent version, you know that, that that app would get a lot of people to switch over. But the, the reality is, is people can't kind of migrate out of it. And so they're kind of stuck and there's some threshold that people will leave. And so you can get away with a lot more. Whereas if Coinbase started trying to do that, people would move to a competitor. They'd move to Robinhood, which is free, or they'd move to Cash App. And so, so I, I think that is, from a, as a consumer, that's what you should care about. And, and I can actually talk to the second point of, of what we're trying to do with the protocol is now businesses have to compete for your use, right? If, if there's no easy lock-in, then they have to be constantly thinking, well, what are new features? Like, maybe I don't want to show so many ads because that is, uh, you know, annoying to my, my customers. Allow you to have reverse cron feeds in terms of like Twitter changing the algo all the, the time and people getting annoyed or Instagram changing its algo to say, hey, we were going to prioritize video over photo. That's a fascinating concept here. And I want to zoom in on this a little bit because if I had the same followers on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn, and, and it's just which app do I like better? I'm going to be hopping all over the place, right? Because it's going to be up to the utility of the actual app that's going to allow me to interact in the same way people do with email, right? People hop email providers all the time because they don't like, for example, the way the interface looks on the back end, or they don't like the feature set that you can or cannot do, or the analytics or whatever, right? That opens up a fascinating need to innovate from, a, from an app perspective. Because in the social marketing world, we've seen very little innovation. Only thing that drives innovation in Web 2 right now with social is com competition. And I feel like there's going to be way more competition in a Web 3 decentralized social universe. So, yes. And what I would say is, so you have the FTC going after, you know, Facebook and, and all these big, big tech. I think that the best thing, and I, it's hard to regulate this, because, but in terms of like, this is why I actually think legislators, especially at the federal level, should be supportive of Web3. Yes, you should put controls in in terms of getting out scams and, and all that, that stuff. Like The more you can do that, the better. But the idea that there would be a general trend towards protocol-based consumer services, right? So you have an underlying protocol for whatever thing you're trying to do. And then on top of that, you have a bunch of competing different apps. Consumers benefit. So like that and, and prices go down, like in terms of like whether it's ads, because now you have different people competing. In addition, what might work for you as a content creator, like kind of a more pro interface, has a bunch of analytics, all this other stuff versus as a consumer who might want something simpler and doesn't want all the bells and whistles. Now you could have distinct solutions, right? Twitter is a great example of this, where it's like they have this product tweet deck, which they don't invest in. They just acquired. but but like. Basically, a, a functioning market for Twitter, there would be a pro tweet deck client for the people who sit on Twitter all day and all they want to do. And then the normal Twitter app would, would kind of deviate more towards something probably like TikTok. Because that's, that's, to be honest, the reveal preference is just give me an endless feed of algorithmic recommendations. But if you didn't like either of those things, there's probably going to be three or four other apps that you could go choose. And so as a consumer, I think that, that that's really powerful is if you can get to a place for consumer choice. And, and so... That's actually the second promise for Farcaster, which is, again, not immediately apparent to the consumer, but the secondary effect of more apps and services would be, is as a developer, you have underlying data and API access that is completely permissionless and, and direct, right? So you don't have to worry about some strategy change at Facebook or Twitter where they say, sorry, the developer platform is no longer a priority. Great that you built a business with an independent Twitter client or Zenga, multi-billion dollar business from Farmville. 
whether or not you think Farmville is, is a good thing for society, there was a business that got built on a promise that this would be a developer platform that changed overnight, that goes away. And so the thing that you get, though, is if you have some surety as a developer, that if I start building on this thing, someone's not going to be able to go pull the rug out from under me. You naturally, over time, get that many more people who are willing to try new things on it because they now feel like, oh, this is actually worth my time because what I build, I get to keep. Whereas if, if you don't have that, this kind of concept of like, I build something and then if it gets like too popular or too good, like it might get turned off, you actually just never have people start to begin with. And, and actually, there's a broader point here, which if you just look at societies that have very strong private property and, and kind of generally entrepreneurial mindsets, you have a lot more innovation and a lot more you know, growth from entrepreneurial companies because the, the kind of like marginal person says, I can go start that because if I work hard and, and build that, whether it's an app or a, a pizza shop, no one's going to come and take it from me. So that actually, I think, is a foundational human kind of motivation when wanting to work on something. And so getting that in at the protocol level that says, you build an app on Farcaster that is competing with Warpcast, our, our company, we have no ability to go in and muck with your relationship with your end users. And I think that that, that stability of a foundation really, really will drive uh, innovation in, in the long run. So just to be clear, Farcaster is the protocol, which is an open protocol. Warpcast is the app and company that is essentially building the first social app on the Farcaster protocol, correct? And what is it that, just because obviously so many people are so entrenched on TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, right? So is there, I would imagine in the beginning, the functionality is very similar and mostly the benefits we've spoken about over the last five or 10 minutes are the key benefits, right? The idea that you could start with the Warpcast app and develop a following and an engagement there. And then as more developers come onto the platform, if for whatever reason you don't like Warpcast, there will be other apps that will take advantage of the same following that you've built. Is that correct? Is there any other things that you'll be able to do with Web3 that frankly are not possible with Web2? Yeah, so I think that that's the core. And it's easy to say, well, that doesn't seem that hard or like there are other ways to do it. And it's like, okay, give me a system where you can have a unique username right? Just like Twitter or Instagram. So there's only one, um, my username is DWR. I can guarantee that there's only one other DWR. So from a- And that'll work across the whole protocol is what you're saying. Works across the whole protocol. There's no DWR on this server, right? If you've ever used something like Mastodon, it copies the email modifier, right? Which I actually think is, you know, for a technically savvy person, they're just like, okay, that, that makes sense to me. But for the average person, that the reason Twitter and Instagram and, and these networks all, they don't use that model. They use- single usernames is, is it's a better experience, right? So, so that, that's one. And I think that the other important thing is going back to this idea that A, you're going to have more developers work on it because they don't have to ask anyone for permission and any users they acquire based on their marketing or their feature set that belongs to them, but also people posting. And, and again, the average consumer doesn't care but the person who has a large following in content creation is, is material to whatever they're trying to do in life, they're more sensitive to that. And so I think over time, if you, if you get the developers and the people producing, right, because it's like 1%, right? this is like the famous like 99-1 rule where 90% of people lurk, 9% of people comment or like, and 1% of people are posting. It's that 1% of people posting that you, you need to kind of convince on something like this. And so the, the, the problem becomes a little bit more tractable, right? Because if you, if you look at Facebook, it's like 3 billion DAO or whatever crazy number, even, even Twitter, right? 300 million. And to think that you could get all the way up there, I think the problem needs to be broken down into parts. It's like really focus on trying to get people who want to kind of use this to start and then kind of work your way up from there. And I think on the other functionality, the... Only other kind of like core difference is because it's, it's actually rooted in a crypto address. And we actually, when you sign up on Warpcast, we try to abstract that away from you. And we hope to make that even more simple and, and kind of plumbing in the background for people over time. But you do issue an NFT basically, right? Is that where we're going with that? Exactly. So now you have kind of this on-chain credential, which developers outside of just what you're posting on social media could potentially be using in a kind of permissionless way. And here, let me give you a concrete example that's Web3 oriented. So 
ETH Denver, which is happening this week when we're recording, is, you know, there are thousands of people who are there. Every person who has an ETH Denver ticket got uh, an NFT sent to them on, I think, Polygon. Farcaster, all the users on Farcaster associated with their username, they have an Ethereum address. A developer in the ecosystem, so not the original team, we didn't come up with this idea. They basically took all the, the NFTs on Polygon, mapped those to the users on Farcaster, and then made an ETH Denver dedicated feed in their app. Just to say, here is a, a feed of everyone on Farcaster who has an ETH Denver ticket. And they didn't have to ask us for permission. We didn't have to be the ones that came up with that idea. They can experiment with it. And, and if it goes from there, maybe they do that for other conferences and things like that. And that becomes a, a product. But if you, if you were to try to go do that with Twitter, first of all, you would need to get people to like, in a more traditional conference, you would need to get them to somehow like off that you're going to the conference. You know that only like some small percentage of people. Or they would use a hashtag. Everybody would use a hashtag and then you'd have a hashtag aggregator. But yeah, and you could have spam, spam it. Yeah. People, yeah, exactly. Right. Whereas this is approvable, you bought the ticket. Right. So yeah, you could try to spam it, but you got to buy it each time you have to buy a ticket. So very basic example where this developer was able to remix everything on their own based on kind of the stuff that's happening on, on chain, which our belief is that will grow over time. There's just more stuff will be on chain, more tickets, more collectibles, more currencies, whatever gets put on on chain. And I, for me to sit here and try to predict all of it, like I'm not going to waste time. It's just, we believe more stuff will be on chain. It's more than it was 10 years ago when I started in crypto. I think 10 years from now, it will be more. And all of that rich data that consumers are choosing to have public can now be integrated into new apps and experiences that didn't exist before. And, and that because everything is permissionless, the developer can just go build it versus, you know, they probably came up with that idea a week ago or two. Like if, if you were to try to like kind of negotiate to get the data access or it's like, hey, can you improve the APIs over here, the centralized company so that we can actually go do this? Just wouldn't happen. So we are uh, going live on this uh, March 31st, 2023. And in the future, people are going to be listening to this, obviously. And by then, Warpcast could be massive. Farcaster could be a huge protocol. But what I want to ask you now is like, what's your plan to go to market? You know, because obviously you are about to emerge from kind of like what, I don't know, it's almost like it's been an invite only beta at this point and it's about to expand, right? So what's your plans there? Yeah, so we have three big milestones that kind of get the network to what I would call like a sufficiently permissionless protocol, right? So it's like, if you have to ask people for permission on anything, I don't, I don't consider it a protocol. So the first is need to make sure all this data and kind of the underlying APIs really are permissionless. So we built this kind of thing called the Farcaster Hub. It's specifically targeted for developers. Average user doesn't need to do, deal with it. But, but that's like a very core milestone for us. That happens in May. The next thing for us is to actually migrate all of the, the existing Farcaster users to the Ethereum mainnet. So that actually is going to cost us some money, right? You have to pay gas and all that. We're going to do that on behalf of the people in the beta. And then the last one is, so far, the way to get on Farcaster has been DM me on Twitter partially inspired by do things that don't scale from Paul Graham. And another one is Facebook was invigated by .edu email address for two and a half years. People forget that. They always think social networks grow virally. And it's like Facebook grew virally within a very small segment of the overall population compared to where they are today. So our view is you need to get to a place where no one has to DM me or, or you can just sign up on chain, right? Because then you can kind of go, go build an app if you want. So that probably happens hopefully end of the year. So those are the three milestones. But in the meantime... We're trying to roll out a wider and wider group of people coming into this, this beta. And so it traditionally, it's been DM me on Twitter. And more recently, we actually started giving users on the network some number of invites. And we're going to try to kind of track who's good at inviting based on do people stick around? Are they posting content that people engage with? That kind of stuff. I want to ask about the functionality. You can finish if there's something else you wanted to say, but I'm curious, like, what are the functions as of publication day here, end of March, you know, that you can do just so people in their mind can visualize how this is going to look? So warpcast.com actually is a, like that. that's live and it'll work and you can kind of just see a, an algorithmic feed of the best of stuff on Farcaster. It looks a lot like Twitter, but in terms of the, the functionality that once you're in the app and signed up, you, you have your basic social stuff. So post, reply, like, recast, all that jazz. There are some Easter eggs for, for Web3 people. So like if you say GM, the like button changes to a GM. 
wouldn't call that revolutionary, but people seem to like it. What about DMs? Can you do direct messaging, private messaging? You can do direct messaging and, and encrypted, which we're pretty pretty stoked about. So it's as, as good as Signal or WhatsApp, and we're a team of 10. So benefit of having open source algorithms that we can we can borrow from. But the I think that the biggest feature and the one to kind of keep an eye on is most active Farcaster users have a... Uh, a connected wallet. So their Ethereum wallet that, you know, probably has their ENS in it and a bunch of NFTs or, you know, their ETH Denver ticket. That is actually associated with their their kind of profile. And so there's a tab to show off NFTs. And as you do things on chain, those come into the kind of feed. So if you actually kind of think of the old school Facebook newsfeed, where it kind of showed different events like, oh, this person's birthday, that, that were not just specifically posts, that kind of layer of what's going on on chain mixed with what people are saying. So it looks like Twitter, but I think that the functionality in some ways is kind of like a news feed for the people you follow on Web3 as well as what they're doing on chain. So that I think is the most different functionality than something like Twitter. Can you do very long form content on the platform, for example, or is there a restriction like there is Twitter with the number of characters that you can have inside of a text post? So right now it's 320. It's just the right number for us to start. But I think we're actively thinking about like, how, how do you make... So, so what's challenging about long is for a content creator, it's like sometimes it's like, this is great. But as a user, and you're like kind of going through a feed and you're like, there's almost like this promise of like a tweet little box is a promise that this can't go beyond 280 characters. So you have a reasonable approximation on the amount of time it takes to read. And so there's this uh, tension between that. And so I think what we want to nail is how do you make it so that it's easy to keep scrolling the feed? But if there is more engaging content, how do you make that appear in the most seamless way possible? So I, I would say that's probably second half of the year. What about personal profiles versus pages? I know it's not the right vernacular, but the idea that you could have a company on there versus an individual on there. So we've actually taken, we, we started out with like no policy and, you know, given it's gated, but then we actually shifted last year to saying no, no brand accounts for now. Because what we found is one, it's, it's a bit of a paradox. Everyone wants a, like a company account, right? They want their company. But then I asked, well, show me some companies that you think have good accounts. And they're like, oh, well, no one has a good brand account. And it's like, so wait, wait, you, you want one, but you're, you're admitting that you think they all suck. So if everyone thinks that, then there's probably some disconnect here. So I think we want to be really thoughtful about how to bring it back in a way that works for those brand accounts, but also works for users. And, and the two things I'd say is, one, I actually think what Twitter is playing around with, like right now, there's something there where I think that what's a much more powerful message, personally, is when a person is willing to stand by what the company is saying, right? So if I'm the CEO of something, and I am the one doing the tweet about it, like, I'm probably not going to want to have maybe as cringe or, you know, like engagement, far, like, I'll probably want to be like, no, this is more authentic to me. And it's associated with the brand and, and people who maybe follow the brand now get this. And so I, I think that there's some interplay there of, and this is what I've told people who are like, well, how am I supposed to you know, announce the new product for my, my company? Just announce it from yourself. Just say, hey, I'm proud of this thing that I've been working on. And we have a lot of like more early stage companies on there. And that human message, I actually think resonates way better, right? Like it's like, oh, instead of it's just some like company with a logo that it's easy to forget it's like it's a human who's saying i work hard on this and i'm i'm proud to share it and so i don't know i i think that's where we want to play around with and and figure it out obviously once the network is completely permissionless people will be able to do whatever they want but i think for the time being while we have a little bit more control i, I think we're we're going to try to be thoughtful about it well, and the Web3 world is full of anonymous individuals. So I would imagine your identity doesn't have to be tied to your face necessarily. It could be tied to your NFT, right? And especially because right now it seems as at least I'm on the inside and it seems like most of the people that are in there are very heavy into the Web3 space. But it seems as if your vision is to transcend just the DGENs, if you will, right? I mean, you definitely want to attract the broader audience. Is that the goal? Yeah, I would say... One, we've focused on folks who are interested in Ethereum. So I think that the best Venn diagram of like, who are the 10,000 people in the beta on Forecaster today? It's people interested in Ethereum and people who are building new things. So there is some overlap with people in DeFi and NFTs, but I think plenty of people building SaaS companies and, and other stuff. But again, interested in Ethereum. I don't think there's as big of like a trading, make money quick culture. Again, not a judgment on that. It's just but like the natural people who have gravitated towards it. So I think it it tends to have, if you're familiar with like 
product hunt and hacker news mixed with crypto Twitter is probably a little bit more of the vibe of where we are. And again, when it's all permissionless and open, it's going to move to wherever the market wants it to move. And, and that's fine because, which I think is important, if you are unhappy with the default or biggest client like Warpcast, so, so let's say we, we lean more into algorithmic feeds because that's actually what you know, users want and they give us feedback and they're like, we really like this. But you're a person who's like, hey, this is not how I want to spend my time on social media. I want to be more deliberate. I want to follow a very specific set of people. I can promise you that there will be a client that is like very dialed to doing that because there would now be a market opportunity. And then that the developer who goes to build that client doesn't have to worry about what happened just a couple of weeks ago with Twitter. And maybe your audience knows or doesn't know, but so Twitter kind of really handicapped their developer platform in 2014. Prior to that, basically all of the apps on mobile were all third-party apps. There's a ton of like interesting innovation. Pull the refresh got invented in like a third-party Twitter app. And then kind of from 2014 to 2023, it exists in this kind of like limbo state, but it was somewhat stable. And then there was this big push prior to Elon coming in where they were like, hey, we, we want to revamp the developer platform. So they had this big conference scheduled for November. This is the beginning of 2022 called Chirp. And obviously Elon bought it immediately, like acts like a whole bunch of the folks on the API team. And then more recently, I think in their cost cutting measures, they realized that like Twitter has a ton of people who are using the API to, you know, do the the different bot accounts and all this other kind of stuff. And they basically just, they cut off all third-party apps. They said, sorry, like TweetBot, like, yeah, you've built a business over almost you know, 20 years or you know, 15 years. Sorry, overnight off. Whereas with Farcaster, it's just like technically not possible. Quick question on the protocol. Eventually, will the protocol begin to embrace different forms of media? For example, video, live video, is that kind of in the game plan or is the media independent of the protocol? Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And so sometimes I think as people reason about this stuff because of Web2 structure, like you upload a photo or in a video to Instagram, you have to also upload it to TikTok and you have to do it to Twitter. Like you, each one you have to upload it to. The way to think about here is it actually doesn't matter where the video is hosted, right? So like you're a big account, like you probably have some professional hosting provider for you. Like Vimeo. Sure. Yeah, like this actually exists in podcasts is a good example. If you have like a big podcast, you actually have to go get a more industrial podcast host because now all these different clients, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, are all going to actually, by the way, RSS, going all the way back to what we were talking about before, that's how podcasts get distributed. But you as the host have to kind of be able to handle all that. And Apple and, and Spotify basically say, hey, because we're going to monetize it on top, we're going to run our own ads if we want. I, I don't actually even know if, they, if they're doing that, but but like the whole point is they might cover your bandwidth costs. But if, if you're going to go back to the, the protocol, what you're going to have is you're going to have a bunch of different hosts and services, and there'll probably be free ones that users don't have to think about. But then there are going to be more industrial ones that maybe have better analytics or whatever for for the, the pro host. Uh, so the media is going to live off the platform is what I'm hearing you say instead of on the platform as it does currently on YouTube and Facebook, for example. Right. And we we have a wonderful technology that has existed since the beginning of the internet for this. It's called the link, right? So if, if you just think of a link in a, in a tweet without them doing all the mucking that they do with it, if it's a link to a video, like to the video file, a forecaster app is just going to be able to be like, oh, this is a video. Like we already know how to handle that. If you ever click on a link that like ends in PNG or JPEG in Chrome, it doesn't try to open up a web page. It just shows it to you as an image, right? So like this technology actually exists, but I think we're, we're kind of coming from a mentality of when you have all these walled garden platforms that don't want to do any sharing, you as a, a creator or you know, content, you're like, oh, I got to upload it to all these things. Whereas with Farcaster, you just upload the post with a pointer to wherever that's hosted. And then it gets distributed to all the different apps. That's cool. So it's actually a simpler model that if you, if you just bring it down to its core, I, as a person, post something, please distribute it to all the people who've already told me that they want to see that. That's it. Like, I mean, there's a lot of complicated stuff to make that all work and fast, which is important. But at its core, that, that is the thing, in our view, to make work really well in a decentralized thing is get the ability to take a post and fan it out to all the people who said they want to see that post in as fast as possible. Dan, this has been really, really fascinating. If people want to discover more about Farcaster, the protocol, or Warpcast, the app, where do you want to send them? And if they want to connect with you on the socials, do you have a preferred, if they're not yet, on your app? Yeah, so Twitter, for better or for worse, I've been using it for 15 years. I know how to use it pretty well. And the DM 
feature for people I don't know actually works pretty well because I can see mutuals and click around on your profile. Yeah, what's your Twitter ID? My Twitter is DWR. It's a pirate icon. And the one thing I would say for folks on this podcast, for you know the first couple hundred people who, who send me a DM, and if you include the word Indiana, so this like the state, in your DM. So make sure you spell it right. Like, yep. you know, don't don't like try to get clever because I'm actually going to be filtering for that word. And I'll know that you you made it through this this podcast, which to me, that's like proof of work. And so I'd be happy to send you an invite. Love it. And then it, what about you said eventually it's going to open up. So where they're going to go, they want to learn more. I mean, in their future, if they're in the future and they're beyond the DMing me stage, where do you want to send everybody? Yeah. So farcaster.xyz is the protocol. There is a link on it that will say learn and you can watch some videos. They're a little bit more technical. And then if you just actually want to see what the app is like, which I think most people care about, is warpcast.com. So like warp drive. So W-A-R-P-C-A-S-T.com. Awesome. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show and answering all my questions. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hey, as a reminder, I am at Web3Examiner, the number three, Web3Examiner on Warpcast, if you want to connect with me there. And if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash W64. And if you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. And would you let your friends know about this show? I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Web3 Business Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may Web3 continue to change your world. The Web3 Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. The information provided in the Web3 Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.